0: What's going on, everybody? And welcome into the 125th episode of the Crazy One Podcast. As always, I'm your host Stephen Gates, and this is the show where we talk about creativity, leadership, design, and everything else that helps to empower creative people. Now, remember, you can listen to all the shows, get the show notes, a whole lot more. Just head over to thecrazyone.com. As always, it's the words the crazy and the number one.com. Remember, do me a favor, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you get the latest episodes whenever those come out. And also, do me a favor, whenever you're actually there listening to the show, take just a couple seconds and leave a review for the show. It lets me know that people are listening, lets me know what they think, and it helps more people find the content. Now, remember, The Crazy One is also on YouTube, where you can get videos, career coaching tutorials, masterclasses, see some of my past keynotes, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. And that can be found just over at thecrazyone.com slash YouTube. So this is going to be the final installment in this three-episode series we've been doing, talking about the value of design. Now, once again, I'm doing this series because over the past couple of years, the question that I have been asked the most, far and away the most, is how do we show the value of design to our company how do we get taken more seriously how do we get out of this just sort of like make it pretty phase what do we need to do well that's what these three episodes look to be able to answer now in the first episode back in episode 123 we talked about how some people see design as that statement of ownership right this is that design thinking you know design sprints uh design systems We see that as sort of a a way of working. They see it as a little bit more of a claim of ownership. But then we also talked about that design versus creativity, that output versus outcome, and how for a lot of us, we need to understand much more that we're in that consequence business, that outcome business, the value-driven business. And that was where we started the foundation. Now, in the last episode, back in episode 124, then we talked about how to create the demand for design. Because I think that's often the problem is if all you are doing are sort of executional type things, if you're put in an executional type role, well then it's hard to be able to show value whenever what you're doing the company sees as a commodity, they just see it as execution. So we talked about how to create that demand through different things, like using a design methodology to bring everybody into the process, to put your customers as the source of truth, to be able to help put your team at the center of what they do and be able to empower them, to be able to take on new things, to work with your partners, to create things like journey maps, to create a vision for where you want your product to go, and then ultimately creating behaviors. And that's sort of what is the mindset and the social contract that you want to create for how does everybody show up. So... Those are sort of a lot of the basics of understanding what our relationship needs to be in creating that demand now in this episode. Now we're going to talk about the the couple different ways we can do to articulate that value. We're going to talk about things like how do you show your work through different things like doing a design review or focusing on how to do feedback and, and what does that really mean. And then we're also going to talk about actually showing the impact through things like metrics and case studies and other ways of being able to do that. So... Yes, we'll actually talk about what are some of the metrics you can use, but understand that's not the magic bullet. So with that all said, right, I think let's start with just how do you sort of show your work? How do you bring people into the work? Because being able to get people involved through things like design methodology, so design thinking or design sprint is a really good thing to be able to do. But you often have to limit How many of those people can you get involved? You don't want the whole company involved in that. You don't want huge groups of people or other teams, right? Like You're going to have to be able to limit that number of or that level of involvement there because if it gets too big, it gets out of control. So because of that, that sort of gives you the working team. But now outside of that, how do I show this work? How do I get feedback? How do I create awareness how do I get other thoughts and opinions and to be able to do that in a way where I think that you know it really is Important to create something that is more open but once again has rules around it So there's two things I want to talk about to do that to show the work The first is to think about and look at how do you do your design reviews And then the other one is to really spend some time and be really deliberate In what are the structures and some of the rules you put around how do you and your team get feedback, how do you capture that feedback? How do you prioritize that feedback and how do you act on it? Because I think in many cases, again, a lot of the value can be won or lost in these sort of moments and conversations. So let's start with design reviews and design reviews are something that I've always really believed in. And I will say right off the top that these design reviews are often needed in organizations that are, if we're being honest, lower maturity meaning there's probably not great collaboration. There's probably not great communication. Maybe there's not a clear vision. Because in higher maturity teams, these aren't necessary. They, they honestly just become obsolete because the teams are actually going through, they're communicating, they're working together. You don't need these sort of moments and rituals to bring everybody together because a lot of what you're trying to solve for has been fixed. But the design reviews that I've done, because a lot of the teams I've been a part of have been in this sort of growing phase, this has been a weekly meeting where we come together to be able to look at work. Now, when teams come into this meeting, it has been defined by our process. So in the process, there are certain stages, certain milestones, whenever they get the initial brief, whenever they get their initial concept, whenever they have their their wireframes or they have their designs, there are set moments when they need to come to this meeting, just because the meeting happens every week, does not mean the teams need to come every week because that it would sort of be chaos, it would create too much feedback, it wouldn't let the teams focus. And so that's not the point of what that is. But what this is, is that it's a meeting that's really meant to change the perception of design. And again, how you focus on the output of what comes out of this process, but more than anything, focus on the outcome. Now, whenever there is this meeting, there's a few really important things that need to happen. One was that whenever this happened, I would always have leadership from design, engineering, and product there. Because what I wanted the teams to know was that this was sort of their one-stop shop, to be able to get leadership from all those teams, to be able to get everybody together, to have one place where there's one meeting, especially in our FOMO remote meeting culture where so many of us get left out, that's often what happens in some of these lower maturity teams is that there's tons and tons and tons of meetings trying because people are being left out. What if they need to see something? So-and-so didn't see it. And then, you know, feedback from the product you know, contradicts with feedback from engineering. And then that's another meeting to work that out. Well, this is meant to put everybody, same place, same time to be able to work through that. And this meeting has rules. And some of them may not initially be popular. Like one of the rules is I'll go out and I'll work with teams in product and engineering to say that leadership has to attend this meeting. This is not an optional meeting. And at the same time, we understand other things come up. People go on vacation, right? Like stuff like that happens. But if you're not going to be able to be there, you have to send a delegate. The work will continue. The meeting will continue whether you're there or not. And if you and your team choose not to show up. If you choose to not to attend or engage or not to send a delegate, then again, everybody else is going to make that decision and the work is going to keep going forward. That can be an almost blasphemous, catastrophic statement to be able to work like that. But one of the big things why I want to be able to do this is that, again, if we are all partners and we are all equals, then we all need to show up as equals. But like I said, this is to come together. Now, whenever the teams come in, A few things happen here. One, the purpose of this meeting is not to make decisions. And that will often require, again, a lot of discipline. The purpose of this meeting is to create awareness across the organization to what work is going on, to help other teams see what is going on, to be able to, again, get visibility into this. So because in many cases, a lot of the teams are so separated, they have no idea what's going on or that maybe we're solving the same problem in different ways. We're here to get feedback, we're here to remove barriers, and we're here to resolve any conflicts. So let's talk about each one of those. Feedback means that whenever the team comes in, there's a slide that they put up that lets everybody know what is the stage of the process they're in, what sort of feedback are they looking for, and then again, you know, what is the due date, the delivery, the next milestone. Now, in a minute or two, we will talk more about feedback, how to capture it, all of those sort of things, right? That, that'll be the next thing we talk about, so I'm going to put a pin in that just for a second. Now, resolve conflicts and problems. Most of the time, if we're being honest, this usually occurs because there is a sentence that often starts with, insert executive's name said. Somebody said something, somebody, you know, wants this sort of piece of feedback, somebody gave a piece of feedback out of order, somebody did something and we're confused, we don't know how to act on it, there's a blocker, there's a problem. So great, now we have everybody in the room, that person can explain themselves, we can resolve whatever that is, we can remove the blocker so that that team can keep getting moving forward. Now again, this could be resources, it could be timing, it could be a whole number of things. But again, it's just to be able to figure out what is the blocker and then assign somebody to remove it. And then the last thing can be if there's a conflict. So again, are they getting conflicting direction? They're not sure what to do. This is what we're there to resolve. And so whenever everybody does this, what we're doing is we're also going to use time as a focusing agent. So whenever the team comes in, you'll get usually somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes, never more than 20 minutes because... Again, if you have multiple teams, if you have a lot of work, this can turn into a two or three hour meeting fairly quickly. And again, we want to be respectful of everybody's time. And I continue to believe time is a great focusing agent. If you give people 15 minutes to present, then isn't it amazing how everything you need to get done gets done in, in 15 minutes? And if you give them an hour, same conversation will take an hour. But that's the thing. You want to be able to come in. So again, you're going to say, this is the sort of feedback I'm looking for. You have a time box to be able to present in. Now the other part of this is that this is not about creating presentation wear and deckware and parades that whenever the teams come in, you show the work, right? you're You're not showing decks, you're not showing you're showing the actual work. So if it's research, show the research. If it's design, show the figma file, right? Like yes, it doesn't mean that occasionally a deck doesn't need to get presented or created for something, but this is not about the pomp and circumstance of presenting to executives. This is not about creating more overhead and more weight for the teams to have to deal with. You come in with the work, you show the work. And like I said, then once we do that, this is to be able to get the feedback, to fix misalignments, to remove blockers. And again, I think that's the whole point of it. And then you get that feedback. And so let's take a minute then to actually look at feedback, because I think that people definitely see the value of design or honestly will consistently tear down the value of design in the way they give feedback, in the way they think about feedback. Because I think feedback in the way this happens often establishes the power dynamic. It often establishes the way you work with each other. It establishes a tone. And so I think in many cases, fixing this, documenting this, is really really important because i think good feedback good feedback for me is inclusive right it brings everybody together it causes a discussion but i also think good feedback creates healthy boundaries now the problem is is that since this is something that is based on social dynamics and something is something that is based on people it is often very difficult because unless you take the time to create feedback guidelines to actually document some of those guardrails, everybody in your organization probably thinks of what good feedback is differently. And again, I think this is another one of these sort of unwritten social contracts where everybody feels like, oh, I'm really good at feedback or, oh, I really help inspire the team. But if that team is getting multiple different forms of feedback in multiple different styles, maybe some of it is useful, maybe some of it isn't. Again, this is an undocumented social dynamic where we are not being deliberate, and often it becomes a pain point, a point of confusion, and things like this. So for me, this is why we need to reach out to people. We need to create a guide to document how to give feedback, and you need to standardize every part of it. I think you need to standardize how do you give feedback. You need to standardize how do you capture feedback. And then you need to standardize how do you prioritize and react to feedback, because there are definitely those three parts to it. Now, how do you give feedback? Now, I think this is often being able to teach people that what you need to be able to do is to figure out what do you want to give feedback on, try to understand what you think isn't working, understand the other person's perspective, and then often start with questions as opposed to statements about why did something happen, as opposed to, I don't like why something happened. Because in a lot of feedback, usually too many people make a whole lot of assumptions. And and there's a lot of these sort of things, right? So you start with the basics. But I think you also need to document what are the social agreements and what are the standards by which we're all going to agree to what feedback means. So some of the common ones that I've had on teams in my past that I think need to be documented and socialized are things like titles. So... VP, SVP, CEO, whatever. Those titles do not make feedback more or less important. Meaning that we should be able to look at and be able to prioritize and go through feedback from an SVP and an intern with the same level of objectivity and not over-prioritize what an SVP says. Because in many cases, this is where we get into trouble. That again, we wanna create a social contract where it is people's responsibility to share feedback in the meeting. Not afterwards, because I've been in plenty of meetings where you say, hey, is there any feedback? And nobody says anything. And then you hang up from the meeting and Slack lights up about, well, I didn't want to say this in the meeting, but here's what I really think. And here's what you should really do. And -and so-and-so told me this and this. And like, it's just, it is a really unproductive, it's a sign of an unhealthy culture. It's a sign of an unhealthy, you know, interpersonal dynamic. But again, it also is then, what do I do with that? Because this feedback wasn't discussed in the open, So how the hell do I know what to do with it? So let's make a standard that that's not what we're going to do. And if you're going to say it behind closed doors, then again, know that I'm probably going to go say it in front of everybody so that my team knows what to do. That, you know, again, the attitude and the thinking behind feedback really matters. This goes back to a lot of trust and other things we've talked about infinitely on this show. So saying things like, look, it's about getting it right, not about being right. That at the end of the day, we need to get the work right. This isn't about you or someone else just driving your opinion home and being right at all costs. Again, that alienates everybody. breaks down trust. We don't need it. Similar things, right? There's a million ways to say the same thing, and they don't all get the same result. Think about the tone you use. Think about your body language, the look on your face. Think about how you say what you say. Because for a lot of people, they'll say, oh, well, I said this. And it's like, yes, those are the words you used. But the look on your face, your body language, your tone, the way you did that says a lot. So again, these are all things that matter. And, and other things at the end of the day, which is also, you know, sometimes again, to that power dynamic, things like, look, at the end of the day, I will tend to believe that everyone is usually inherently reasonable. And if they suddenly seem like they're not reasonable, then the chances are they know something that you don't, and there's probably something we need to talk about. But there are a lot of these. I mean, watch whenever, watch these meetings, watch how people give feedback, what happened, watch what happens before, during, and after the meeting. These will show you and tell you the things that you need to put in these feedback guidelines and how to customize it to your team. And again, just like so many of these things we've talked about, behaviors and guidelines and a lot of this stuff, none of this is rocket science. But what continues to seem to be rocket science is the ability to write it down, document it, standardize it, and then hold people accountable to it. That seems to be freaking revolutionary. But that's all about how do you give the feedback. Now then, how do you capture the feedback? Now, I think this is, again, a, something that how do you capture and prioritize it is often a big stumbling block for teams. And that, again, how this is done, heard, listened to, and acted on really will, again, go to how do you show your value? Now, you need some way of being able to capture this feedback that is standardized. Now, I'll post some of the, the mural templates and other things that I've built over the years to be able to do this around, is this something we need to act on? Is this something that goes into the parking lot? Is it something we can't do? Right? Like you, but you want to be able to capture everything. Now, the other part of this is whenever you think about feedback, is that I think prioritization and feedback is often really important. And again, this is generally true of lower maturity organizations, so that you know, higher maturity organizations, better teams don't need to do this. But lower maturity teams often struggle with this. And that what this is is that I said something that I thought was really important, but the team didn't seem to act on it. Or maybe I said something that I thought was pretty major, was pretty minor, and the team acted like it was the end of the world. So there's a misalignment between what people are saying and then what the prioritization is, and either the way it's being said or the way it's being heard. So, in a lot of cases, what I'll do whenever this is happening is to ask the person that is giving the feedback to prioritize it on a scale of one to five, one being extremely minor, five is basically like stop the press to stop the world. Now, the reason why that's important is I think it's important both for the person that is giving the feedback as well as what the impact on the work is. Because one, if it's really minor or something like that, I want everyone to know that I'm just saying this is a passing comment, not a big deal. But I also want people to know, look, if I think this is really a breaking change, if this is really a breaking experience, this is something that is not going to go well, I want people to understand that I think it is that important. But I also, you know, the team also is going to want me to know that if I'm going to rate it really highly, if I'm going to give it a four or a five, there is consequence to putting that number on it that we're going to need to stop work. Maybe we need to shift a timeline. Maybe we're gonna have to divert from what it is we're doing. Maybe we need to add in another sprint, right? Like something serious is going to happen because of that prioritization and that rating. Now, the reason why you do this in the simplest possible terms is to prevent people who cry wolf, where everything they say every single time is the end of the world, it's horrible. And that pretty soon you're going to see if they start to delay projects, if they start to do these sort of things, that what you're doing more than anything really is creating consequence. Because I think often whenever you look at giving feedback and doing these things, that's often what's missing. I can say whatever it is I want to say. I can, have, I can throw a wrench in the works. I can be dramatic. I can do all this stuff, say these outlandish things, and the team deals with it. And my behavior is basically, there's no consequence to my behavior. It It kind of is like having a puppy who keeps peeing on the carpet and you keep giving it treats and not disciplining it, right? Like an over-exaggeration, maybe a bad metaphor, but fundamentally that's sort of the way people feel is why do people keep getting away with this bad behavior and keep being so dramatic, derailing, not engaging with the process? So I think that's the other thing that feedback does. And because look, I, I do think that a big part of, for designers showing their value is showing up as an equal partner. And that isn't just always being the happy partner, the accommodating partner. Sometimes that means being the partner who creates consequence, who has standards, who sets themselves up for success and doesn't just take whatever dumpster fire is thrown in your lap and makes the best of it. And so again, I think these sort of things for so these feedback mechanisms and other things like that, they can shape social behavior. They can be able to set boundaries. They can help set those healthy guardrails. But you have to be able to do that around what is the, the social contract so it's a productive conversation, a prioritization, So that then again, we understand how do we act on it and then the consequence that comes out of that. So that then now the next time the next design review starts, what happens? The team shows up. They say, last time we heard blank. We did blank to be able to act on that. Now today we're at the next milestone and we're looking for this feedback and the cycle starts over. But now there's a connection end to end from the presentation through the feedback, through action, back into again, presentation and feedback again. So that, again, this, this starts to create a healthier cycle. And this is why over time, as your team matures, rituals like design reviews and these, these sort of feedback guidelines should die out. Because this should just simply become a part of how you work. The, the crutch, the structure, the infrastructure, the scaffolding this creates can be taken down. But I think the other part of this, right? I think that's just how do you show the value of your work? Right? Like how do you engage in a conversation that way? I think then the other part of it is showing the impact, because this is often what this comes down to, is we exist, in many cases, inside of a business. How do we demonstrate our value to that business? Now, in many ways, what then needs to happen is we need to speak the language of the business. Now, probably the next episode is going to deal with this intersection, Because I do think this is definitely a point of friction because I think in too many cases, the design team learns the language of business and in not nearly enough cases, does the business learn the language of design, but that's for another episode. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole here, but I think obviously one of the the first ways to be able to demonstrate impact is to use metrics. Now, I I think metrics are something that it, it can be very effective in conjunction with everything else we're talking about. Because again, metrics are, there's a pro and a con. There's definitely a double-edged sword here. Because whenever you, you start to do this, you can definitely measure you know, things. Whenever you go in, you can look at views, click-through rates, you can look at conversion rates, you can look at um, drop-offs, top exits. You, like, right, there's a lot of those sort of things. And now what should be happening is that your product team, your executives, your, whoever it is you work with, should be giving those whenever you start out. So, that then that way you can say, we were tasked with this metric. We did this work. We moved it. We, again, underperformed, hit the target, overperformed. We did something to demonstrate the impact of it because that's what business needs to hear. That's what they care about. Now, what I would say is, again, what those are are going to vary by your business. You can always find them. There's a lot of very standard ones to be able to do it. But I, I do think that getting your team to become more grounded in metrics more grounded in data. This is why we talked about using a design methodology and starting to do testing and prototyping because it stops the opinion war. But I think here again, this shift to using metrics, to using data, to using testing, to becoming more research, in, research informed, it's really good because you and your team start to become more, more goal-oriented, meaning you can create better decisions, you can focus conversations, you can do a lot of these things because you know what the goals you need to hit. I think you can... You and your team can start to see things in systems. You can start to see how things are interconnected, how we fix this, but maybe it broke something else, or we fix this and it helps something else. You can start to see the system and the interconnected nature of things. But also I think in many cases it's good because it does help you and your team learn the language of the business, learn what matters to them. Again, I'm still shocked by how many teams I talk to that are part of publicly traded companies. I ask them, how many of you listen to your earnings call? And almost none of them do. And again, I think you need to learn what matters to the business, because if you want to show your value, if you want to pick the right metrics, you need to pick it with what is aligned to what do they care about. But here again, I think that metrics and a lot of what we're talking about is that for me, the the process of measuring, the process of data, the process of research, I think, honestly, is probably even more important than the result because it creates good side effects for your team. And I think in a lot of cases, it creates tangible things that you and your team can discuss with your partners, because so much of what we do is this opinion war. Is it the right color? Is it the right size? There's not a right answer to these questions. So what we need to be able to do is to inject these sort of things into our work, where there are areas where we can have definitive conversations around what is working and what is not. Did it improve? Yes or no. And moving it into that. This is, again, much more of the outcome business. This is much more of the creativity, the thinking, the strategy side of this. That's what that's based in. Now, the last part of this is, I think, whenever you do all of this work, when you're doing all of these things, don't ever assume that people know what you're doing. Don't ever assume that they understand what the impact is. Don't ever assume that they're paying attention and want to value what you do. Because businesses are big, people are busy, there are ag- varied agendas. So I think this is where things like case studies, roadshows, videos, whatever this is, that, what any way that you can document your work and show everyone the value and the impact of these new ways of working, of your involvement, of design, of these sort of things. And I think that makes such a major difference is to go out and regularly, regularly tell these stories. Tell the stories of success. Tell the stories of your learning. Highlight partners who you are working with, who are great partners. One of the best things you can do if you want to help empower your team, one of the best things you can do to drive better results is to create organizational jealousy. Meaning that so many of the people you work with, what it is they crave is executive acknowledgement. They want better results. They want this sort of stuff to be able to happen. They want people to say, wow, you're doing a great job. That's fantastic. That's really new. Pay attention to me. So if you can help them do that, then that gives them more of what they want. You are trading in the currency of the the organization. So I think that's why you want to be able to do this, right? Say, hey, we did this and it worked really well. Hey, we did this and it didn't work, but Here's what we're doing about it. Here's the way we're evolving it. Here's the way we're taking on. So whether that's in, I don't care if it's in a newsletter. I don't care if it's in a video. I don't care if it's in all hands. I don't know if you do do a lunch and learn, right? Like find a way, give away free food, do something to get people to come and listen to what's going on with this. And I think that is the sort of thing that can make such a big difference. Now, the last part of this is you may be sitting here and saying, Steve, like this all sounds great, but I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. They won't let me in. They're not going to let me make these changes. And so here's the last secret that I'm going to share with you today, is that if you're, if you're sitting there and you're thinking that, you're saying, look, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. What do I do? Nobody wants to work with me. They're, they're all too set in their ways. The trick that I've definitely learned over the years is to go out and start doing this work, start making these changes on a piece of work nobody cares about. It's the opposite of what you're going to think, because you're going to think, oh, I should go take on the biggest, shiniest, the thing that has the most attention, the thing that has the most interaction, the most executive attention on it. That's the thing that's the most set in its ways. That's the thing that has the most red tape. That's the thing that's going to have the most pushback and resistance. Instead, go out and work on the thing that nobody cares about, because what you're going to find is you're going to find a team that is so grateful for the attention and the work because nobody ever pays attention to them. You're going to find a way to be able to get there and work and make a change and create a case study and be able to show what the impact is, again, with people who really want to partner with you. And then at the end of that, you're going to get a case study that says, look at what we did, look at the impact we made, and then look at how we did that on something that nobody cared about. Can you imagine what it'll do if we start to work this way on the bigger projects, on the things that move the needle more, on the things that we do start to care about? But again, think about that. Kind of piloting mentality think about that way of working with things and that as you go through this remember And I think this is one of the biggest things that people struggle with whenever they go into work like this Is that what you need right now is you need a plan and that plan does not need to have all the answers We don't have all the answers when we go in to go do a design project or be able to go create something This is no different. This is a design problem So what you want to be able to do whenever you go into this is you want to have a plan Meaning which of these things do I want to do? Where do I want to start? Who do I want to start it with? What is the cadence? Who's going to hold me accountable? How do I know if it's working? And then give yourself and your team and everybody else the time, the space, the, the grace and the kindness to yourself to be able to go and figure that out. Because too many people think, oh my God, I have to have all this figured out before I start. That's never the case. It doesn't work. You're going to try things. They're going to work really well. You're going to try other things. They're going to fall flat on their face. All that's part of the process. That's always what creativity and working on stuff like this is. And I think that's why whenever you go through and do this, it's important, like I said, to just have the plan. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. Because here's the the biggest thing that I've learned as I've gone through and done work like this, is that success and change and doing things differently never really feels like it's working in the moment. Because some of the most innovative work that I've done, some of the cultures that I've changed, some of the new things that I brought in, in the moment, they feel like stress and struggle and work. And this, I'm not sure this is going to be worth it. And I don't know if this is going the right direction. And am I pissing everybody else off? The thing that I would remind you, which is what I often have to remind myself, is that success is a concept that only exists in hindsight. After you do something, after it works, whenever you're able to to go through that process and look back and see that things have gotten better, then you can say, oh, that was successful. That when the moment of doing something, it is, there have maybe only been one or two moments in my career where I'm like, this is going to be awesome. This is going to work really well. There's always that trepidation. There's always that imposter syndrome. There's always that struggle, that stress, that is this going to be enough? Is this going to be right? Right because you're so caught up in it, you've lost the context of where you came from. But that doesn't mean you're going the wrong way. It doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. But I think this is often what happens is too many people get in the midst of that, they get in the clutches of that stress and that struggle, and that it doesn't feel like instant gratification, or like it's working in the moment. So then they start to doubt, then they start to back off, then they start to sort of go in another direction, even if maybe they were going the right way and just a step or two more, and they would have been there. But they give in to all of those sort of things, and so they start to back away. But again, just remember, that's often the struggle, is that success is a concept that only exists in hindsight. That for so much of my work, for so much of what I've done, everybody goes, oh, that's so great. But like nobody would look at my career in reverse and tell you it was a good idea. Nobody would tell you a lot of the approaches that I've taken to do things before I did them would be a good idea, these are things that have only been deemed as successful or deemed as a good idea now afterwards because they worked. And people went, Oh, I knew all along. I knew you could do it. I knew you were on the right direction. I knew that was the right track. Bullshit. No, you didn't. Right? You weren't encouraging. You weren't there. You didn't say anything. You were the doubting person. You wanted me to be the first one to run up the hill. And if I was the first person to get shot, like maybe wounded, not shot, but I think, like, but if I was the first person to be able to go up and take that bullet, that was fine by you. Because you didn't want to be the person. But I think that's the thing, is that whenever you're in the midst of it, it's never going to feel that way until you're on the other side of it. So just remember that and keep pushing. But I think if you take all of this as a playbook, if you take the parts and pieces, I I don't think you can do all three of these episodes at once, right? Find the things that you think are going to start to work. Find the places where you have the allies. Find the places where you can start to make some of these changes. And just start. Start. There's never going to be a perfect moment. There's never going to be a perfect time. There's never going to be, it's, I don't know what, it's like going, for some weird weird reason, like transformation is like vacation, right? Like you never look at your calendar and go, oh, look, there's two weeks with nothing to do. I should go on vacation. It's going to be the same thing here. There's never going to be a perfect time to start making these changes. The perfect time is today. The perfect time is to start tomorrow, to be able to actually start to put some of these things in place, in play, and just start and then figure it out as you go, make the changes, evolve and adapt to do those sort of things. And that is gonna get you to move forward and to be able to get things to be better. But it is, and I think that fundamentally is how you show the value of design, is that you start, you value yourself. You define how you want to be successful, how your team needs to be successful. You put these sort of healthy boundaries in these places and these structures in place to either diffuse the bad behavior or encourage the good behavior. And that's what some more of us need to do is to be able to go through and model what we want, right? Model the behavior you want. Put the processes in place for what you want. Take a stand for what that is. Don't just complain about what you don't behind the scenes. Go out and be a part of that change. Put that plan in place and just start. So, as always, the couple of things that I've referenced in this show will be in the show notes. You can check that out at thecrazy1.com. It's the crazy plus the number1.com. Like I said, I'll take I'll a couple of the mural layouts and a few of those things so you can sort of see what it looks like and what I'm talking about. Um, again, if you want to keep the conversation going, ask more questions, stuff like that, you can follow me on social media. You can get updates, new content, ask questions. You can follow the show on either LinkedIn or Facebook, and you can follow me personally on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, everybody not illegal always wants me to remind you that the views here are just my own. They don't represent any of my current employers. And finally, I say it every time because I mean it every time, but thank you for your time. I know that time is truly the only real luxury any of us have. I was incredibly humbled you and has been any of it sitting here listening to me. So go out, stand up for yourself, stand up for your value and for what it is you bring. Don't let others define you and what you're worth. Be able to go and put some of this stuff in place to be able to show what that value is and show them the impact we can have. And while you're doing that, Absolutely. Stay crazy.